Hello. Um, so, strangely enough, when we were discussing the establishment of the graduate course in women's studies, we had a lot of heated exchanges in 1993-4 uh, about what to call things. Gender studies, women's studies, feminist studies, gender and the humanities. Um, actually, we didn't spend much time addressing the kind of gendered resonance of this term master as a designation for a degree. And that might be a good illustration of the way that habitus functions, according to the sociologist Pierre Bourdieu. He, he talks about structured structures that generate and organise behaviours. I'll leave that quote up there and not, and not uh, run through it. But, um, so, uh, to put it simply, uh, the term master's degree already had an institutional denotation, and there would have been no political benefit in arguing for a designation which has suggested our students would achieve anything less or something different than another student doing a one-year taught course. Um, the term mistress, of course, had already completed its downward spiral um, towards a sort of sexual de derogation as the female equivalent of master. Um, but we also thought about this idea of mastering uh, in the sense of an active verb rather than a noun. Our students, we hoped, would comprehensively understand the inter-, multi-, and cross-disciplinary methods and theories of women's studies. So they would master a field of inquiry without necessarily being imagined to be mastering their object if, if the object of women's studies is women. So I want in this short keynote to talk a bit about the distance that we've travelled from 1995 to 2015 in terms of the dynamic interaction of the institutional and intellectual politics of women's studies. Um, and I'm doing that in the context of my own experience of introducing and delivering a master's course in the humanities in an elite institution like Oxford. Uh, and I say my own experience is a shared experience, and lots of the women that have shared that experience uh, are, and men are in the room today, so that's lovely. Um, to start with, though, I need to say that the argument for us rested on the imperatives of social practice, which is why I've reached to, to Bourdieu to kind of help explain some of the things or think through some of the things that we were doing. Uh, so this is an act, I think, introducing, of course, as an act of social practice, um, not uh, just an act of ideas, if you like. Uh, so two principles. The first one, a very simple one, was just that the extraordinary research opportunities and archives at a place like Oxford, a place with a copyright library, most of us were in humanities, we, said, we felt, um, as, a, as a basic principle, should not be closed to feminist analysis. Um, and we wanted to foster that opportunity for feminist work with these materials. The second one was that women's studies would provide opportunities for scholars at all levels to interact with each other in relation to their research specialisms and their interest in pedagogic innovation. So women and men who worked in different fields in the humanities already relied on each other, consulted with each other, and we wanted to build a structure that further enabled those interactions, uh, and a structure that was visibly recognised in research and teaching. So to make those kind of private capillary interactions that were so fundamental to the development of our own research into something material and embedded in the institution. We'd run for many years an interdisciplinary seminar led by anthropologists, social scientists, and humanities scholars, and we'd formed a committee of women's studies. We called ourselves a committee. It wasn't formally constituted by the university. We just labelled ourselves a committee. Um, <laughs> universities like committees. Um, <laughs> uh, and I'm wearing my badge from 1993 that we all made and wore. We called ourselves Oxford cheapest, cheapest faculty because none of us were paid to teach women's <laughs> studies. 
Uh, we were called something else. We ran with no funding and we had no institutional home or recognition. Um, but we did run seminar series and occasional conferences and we produced publications from those series through Macmillan, um, including a book that I co-authored um, on women's magazines. And the small royalties that came, in those days you did get royalties for publishing, <laughs> they funded our ongoing activities. Um, and increasingly what happened was that graduate students were being recommended to this committee, people who wanted to do research. Um, people were saying, oh, I think there's a committee somewhere, you could work with them. <laughs> so, uh, and they did come to us, but of course we couldn't, um, uh, they, they couldn't be um, if you like, supervised from within the committee. Um, so in designing our course, we aim to produce a habitus, a space to live and behave and interact within the field of the institution we were all employed by within our own disciplines. Um, and we weren't wrong then, I think, in recognising, it will be different in different institutions, but in this institution, the one practice that embeds a field of knowledge is examination. So the one thing that makes it very difficult to get rid of something <laughs> is, is an exam. It's very difficult to get an exam introduced, it's very difficult to remove one. We have a ridiculous thing called the Grey Book. It takes two years to get regulations into the Grey Book. Grey Book, not Grey Book, Grey Book. It takes two years to get it out. So, so what you want is to get in there <laughs> so that it's difficult to disembed you. So that's what we did. We, we thought up an examination structure that would, make it, um, would embed women's studies uh, as a, a course. So, uh, and I think that's interesting, because where other courses have been picked off, I think, by successive vice-chancellors and um, registries at other universities in the name of economics of scale or restructuring, the Masters in Women's Studies at Oxford has been quite resilient, if accordingly underfunded. One of the interesting things about introducing a Masters course is you have to fill in a form saying it will cost nothing. <laughs> um, because we already have the resource here. Uh, so this lecture um, refers to Bourdieu's sociological categories to contemplate this experience of inhabiting a space of economic inquiry within the field of Oxford and beyond that, that field of higher education. I hope that the concept of habitus will help to frame and keep grounded in institutional and bodily experience our evaluation of the constraints and opportunities of women's studies as a taught course. I also hope that some of what I will say will keep turning our attention to issues of pedagogy and the productive tension between teaching and learning, perhaps of mastery and submission, which is always under investigation in a politically self-conscious programme of study. So I'm sure I'm not alone amongst lots of other feminists who, who, who are concerned one, about the idea of sort of teaching women's studies in a top-down way, uh, as though it was something that we were, we, we were delivering to people who, who needed some kind of special and privileged knowledge that we were transferring to them. Um, there's some interesting research from, um, there should be a, a handout that's gone around, which is some of the uh, interesting, I hope, useful references on the history of women's studies. Um, Lampianin and Nascali's feminist researchers learning to teach, um, they conclude that feminist epistemologists and feminist pedagogists see scientific knowledge as a result of humanly instituted practices involving objects always already invested with human values. So we had qualms about teaching women's studies and we wanted to devise what we would now probably term something like a shared learning experience. We also wanted to get away from the idea that the objects of our study uh, were material to be mastered or in some way disciplined, um, but rather that the objects of our study are something which shapes the nature and structure of one's own inquiry. So women are not objects of study for women's study. They are both material and method, doers and done to, agents and subjects. 
What we did debate, and we debated often in setting up the course, was how much time to give to the male masters from whom so much feminist theory had derived. So we had quite ferocious conversations about, you know, should we do entire courses in Marx and Lacan and Freud before we got to Kristeva uh, or to, um, or to uh, Delphi or... or um, um, the, the women who, who, uh, and, and the feminist writers who'd, who'd followed on from them. So we made a conscious decision to give teaching and learning time and space to the feminists who had addressed and appropriated those male theorists. Um, so here too, um, I'm, I'm focusing, when I'm talking about Bourdieu, I've turned to the feminists who've appropriated Bourdieu and I've tended to use them to explicate to you why Bourdieu might be helpful. So I'm returning uh, quite frequently to two particular feminist scholars who've already redacted and appropriated Bourdieu's arguments for feminism, uh, and they both actually have um, uh, uh, good, uh, well, um, familiar with careers at Oxford. Uh, so Lois McNane uh, and Tora Moy. Tora Moy was um, uh, my supervisor uh, um, for a while, and Lois McNane was the first person that I taught the feminist theory course with. Uh, when we started the master's course. So just to sort of rehearse some terms, Bourdieu distinguishes between three terms. Habitus, socialised norms or tendencies that guide behaviour and thinking. Habitus is the way society becomes deposited in persons in the form of lasting dispositions, trained capacities, structured propensities to think, feel and act in determinant ways which then guide them. He distinguishes habitus from field. Field are the various social and institutional arenas in which people express and reproduce their dispositions and where they compete for the distribution of different kinds of capital. A field is a network, a structure, or a set of relationships, which may be intellectual, religious, educational, cultural. And finally, doxa. Doxa, um, some Marxists might think about, uh, call this ideology, the combination of both orthodox and heterodox norms and beliefs, the unstated, taken for granted assumptions or common sense behind the distinctions we make. Now, the two, the two theorists I'm thinking about, Lois McNay uh, and uh, Toromoy, Lois McNay points out that habitus is not conceived as oppressive but rather as generative, which is why it's a helpful term to use rather than just thinking about sort of systemic structures that are always top-down and oppressive. So she says, habitus is not to be conceived as a principle of determination, but as a generative structure. The generative nature of the habitus, habitus is grounded in what Bourdieu calls a double and obscure relation between individual habitus and the social circumstances or field from which it emerges. The second line, I don't think I need that quote to um, To turn to Toromoy, um, Toromoy is what is a woman, um, reminds us that recent feminist inquiry has seen a turn from a long argument for ungendered minds that sort of dates all the way back to <coughs> feminist appropriations of Descartes uh, to embodied forms of knowledge. From thinking about cognition as abstract reasoning to thinking about knowledge as something that is traced and extended across embodied experience. The new material feminism departs from second wave deconstructive feminism to consider the extent to which matter thinks. The idea that physical environment and being can determine what and how we know and generate what and how we know. Moy captures this attempt to get away from scientific accounts of sex uh, and an idealist one of gender for a feminism that is, as she puts it, concrete, historically grounded and socially situated understanding of what it means to have a human body. 
Moy turns to Bourdieu to help her shape or argue for this new bodily feminism. Um, the aspect that I'm interested in that she's talking about in relation to Bourdieu is the institutional aspect. She points out, well, she summarizes Bourdieu helpfully. She says, education for Bourdieu is a principal agent of symbolic violence, soft violence, which presents forms of social control as spaces of freedom. As he puts it, there's a kind of state nobility. Education produces a social belief in the legitimacy of current dominant power structures. He does concede that education produces some objective competencies. So when you're educated in the classics, you probably learn Greek, ancient Greek. And that's, that's an abstract competence, if you like. But you are also entering a system which is designed to produce social agents rich in political and economic power who know how to take advantage from education. And he points out that those from less privileged groups often don't profit so from education. So the ideological role of the educational system is to make it appear as if positions of leadership and power are distributed according to merit. So the miraculous minority often only confirms this belief. So this sounds like a sort of terrible knock. We put women's studies into the institution and all we do is produce a kind of miraculous minority that enables people to say, look, education is liberating. It's not a form of social control. <laughs> you see that sort of knock that we get into. Moy, I think, is helpful here because she points out that a crisis in the social order, for example, around gender, makes a opens up the possibility to question doxa, what makes the world seem natural and self-evident. Evident. So there is a, she is arguing, and I would argue, that there is a way in which women's studies, feminist discourse within the institution, um, tied to a larger crisis or debate in the social order beyond it, does have the capacity to, if you like, investigate, enter, critique that institution rather than confirm its, its, its claims um, um, to, to be extending political and social freedom equally to all um, through an educational process. So she says, um, this is her, her summary, to study feminist discourse is to situate it in relation to the structures of the field in which it arises. A truly <coughs> critical, that is to say, anti-doxic social... Um, oh, this is the old... Sorry. Um, <laughs> there's a whole phrase missing out, and I sent a, a, an updated one, and now I can't find that phrase. I haven't got it. Um, so it doesn't make grammatical sense. <laughs> a truly critical, that is to say, anti-dexic social, uh, sorry, investi feminist investigation explores the social conditions of possibility of feminist discourse. Or in other words, feminism as critique must also be a critique of feminism. So just to move on to, to briefly sort of suggest a way we might think about field inhabitants is to say, in the wider world, we might say, uh, uh, within feminism, that the field might be understood to be sex gender system and in women's studies we're looking at how women are disposed or, or dis, uh, uh, the way they live, uh, their dispositions within that field. Uh, within women's studies, and that's the area I'm thinking about more today, we might say that there's a field which is higher education and the habitus, the thing that we inhabit, is women's studies within that field. Um, I want to raise, I said I'd talk about habitus and hazards. Um, I want to get, I'll come back to this um, at the end of the lecture, I, I want to point to two hazards um, which our understanding of women's studies as habitus rather than doxa might allow us to address. Um, these are, I think, also the hazards, institutional and intellectual, um, and Bourdieu, I think, suggests that these aren't necessarily that distinct. The hazards institutional and intellectual that, con intellectual that continue to inform women's studies 
and I suggest make the strongest argument for the importance, actually, of preserving uh, women's studies uh, and programs in women's studies. Um, so the first one, I'll come back to these, is misrecognising changes, indeed crisis in the field, as acts of symbolic violence in relation to women's studies. And the second is misrecognising critical debate or divisive conflict of doxa, debates about trans and queer sexualities, transnational, race intersectional, um, uh, intersectionalities, uh, misrecognising those as, um, 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 as things that need to be suppressed rather than addressed from within women's studies. And again, I've lost a bit of the slide there. Um, I will come back to these. I just want briefly to t say a few things about women's studies. So, to summarise, women's studies is in part an accomplishment of the women's movement of the 1960s and 70s. Um, we might say that women's studies is an accomplishment of the women's movement. We might venture to argue that women's studies is part of that movement as well. Uh, we're not only studying feminism, we're also doing feminism. So the distinction between theory and practice, academia and activism, isn't clear in feminism, in women's studies, nor should it be. Um, the first women's studies courses in the UK began as courses for women, about women. These courses appeared in the early 1970s in various sectors of adult education programmes. Um, there were courses offered about women in society, offered by the Workers' Education Association, for instance, the WA, which was founded in 1903 first. Um, it's through adult, educa adult education programmes that the National Women's Liberation Conference in the UK was first imagined. In Oxford, at Ruskin, during a workshop on working class history, women began to plan the first conference, which in February 1970 brought 600 women and men to Oxford to discuss women's oppression in this society. So the emergence of women's studies in the UK is tied to an already politicised context of higher education, and especially to working class politics. Within this context, connections are made between who has access to education and what it is that's being studied. Um, the attempt in addition wasn't simply to allow students to learn about the world, but in teaching students, the goal was also to change the world, that is to educate those who did not or could not afford tuition, give people not simply more work possibilities, but also access to an intellectual life as a good in itself. Within the university system, the first named women's studies courses were offered in the 1970s. Most often these courses were based actually in social science faculties, especially in sociology, which in the UK was of course a particularly left-leaning field and at the forefront of student activism. Although women's history developed in the 1970s, this history was often written by historians who weren't employed full-time in higher education. Uh, through the 1980s and 1990s, freestanding programmes were developed. Uh, the first programme was in 1980, the MA in Women's Studies at the University of Kent at Canterbury. Um, I went in, in 1982 to Canterbury to think about applying to that MA, uh, and in the end um, took the coward's option, I think, and, and took it, started my DPhil here. But, um, I, I, I still regret not doing it, actually. Um, throughout the 80s and 90s, other programmes opened at, opened at schools such as York, Warwick, Essex and Lancaster, as well as LSE. University of Sussex and Polytechnic of North London and Oxford University. This programme began in 1995. And our goal was to serve students who sought to deepen their understanding of feminist and gender theoretical frameworks and also to make a transition from one discipline to another. So we were interested um, in um, enabling women who had backgrounds in the social sciences to move into the humanities and vice versa. 
women's studies, interestingly, thinking about the idea of habitus, we didn't frame it as a place to stay so much as a place to pass through, either to activism or to a further degree. And that's why, why it was a, a short one, uh, MST course. So in addition to tracing the emergence of courses in women's studies, we can also look to the, to the wider field and the establishment of academic groups for women interested in feminism and of academic journals for the publication of feminist work. And I've just listed some here. I won't discuss them in detail. So what's important to take from this history? Two things. First, the history of women's studies in the UK is tied to the history of class politics and the issue of access to higher education. Next... Um, that part of making higher education accessible has been about changing curriculum to attend to the experiences and knowledges of those people previously excluded that you introduce into the educational system. Understanding this history compels us to consider the intersections of different identities. That is, for instance, uh, how, for instance, gender identity may be shaped or in part by class. It also begs for us to think about the relationship between that which is studied and who's doing the studying, the relation between the subjects and objects of knowledge and that's been an ongoing concern of feminist epistemology. Um, just to make sure that we don't run short on time, I'm just going to briefly list the, the ways in which we've tended to characterise women's studies. Um, so common features. Uh, women's studies scholarship is feminist, where being feminist means that it does not relegate women's experiences to the margins and it encourages women to be knowledge producers. Definitions of women's studies often call practitioners to consider scholarship across divisions of race, culture, class, sex, and nation. So women's studies draws attention to diversity amongst women. Um, we need to acknowledge that bringing women to the centre is not to bring one kind of woman to the centre, not, uh, and it's a constant, as we all know, struggle not just to bring white, middle-class, straight women to the centre of our analysis. Um, so this acknowledgement requires challenging not only sexism, but also other forms of oppression, such as uh, racism, ageism, etc. Women's studies sees knowledge as transformative, so we seek to transform power relations, we seek, we seek to transform the way we think about knowledge. Um, and one of the ways that, I guess one of the controversial ways in which that's often been debated is the place of person and personality and, re and, and, and uh, emotion. In our, in, in, our, in our analytics, and that's a, a still a contested debate, I think. Um, and finally, uh, women's studies challenges traditional disciplines. Um, sorry, that's my last one. Not very good at passing the other Often we think about um, women's studies as interdisciplinary, um, that we can't arrive at an analysis without moving across disciplines rather than remaining within them. Feminist scholars argue that traditional disciplines have framed their object of analysis in a way that excludes women and gender from their scope of inquiry. Within this context, interdisciplinarity doesn't only provide a space for the study of women and gender, it also seems necessary in reflexive work that takes the disciplines themselves as objects of inquiry to analyse how women have been excluded and gender naturalised. Okay, I'm just going to move on now to think about these hazards. So the first one I said I'd talk about the changing field of higher education. Mary Evans reminds us that women's studies have seen two major changes since its inception in the 1980s, that history I've just been talking about. The first is increased liberalism about sexual and social behaviour, she says. 
which goes alongside matched neoliberal decisions about university education. So with, in the UK, the expansion of numbers in the university has been matched by the removal of state funding. Okay. <laughs> yes. Um, so I think what, when I was talking about misrecognizing um, uh, what's happened in women's studies, is, is I think we need to be clear that women's studies hasn't been um, straightforwardly targeted as a discipline that needs to be kind of closed down or removed, but it's been part of a wider um, reconception of what education is, which has. Uh, partly excluded or precluded or meant that women's studies courses have tended um, to close down. So we've often debated and announced the death of women's studies courses at the undergraduate level. There's some TLS article, there's a TLS article in 2008 by Esther Oxford on your list, uh, and there's another one by Lisa Downey in 2013. And there's no doubt that women's studies courses have closed down in Oxford, uh, in, in, in the UK generally. However, we need to see this closure incorporation and rebranding of women's studies work, I think, within two contexts. The first, um, and you know, you might feel this is a Pollyanna approach, but I think it is true, is that it's partly a measure of the success of women's studies programmes that in promoting women's studies perspectives, we've also managed to integrate them into other disciplines and to promote other ways of interdisciplinary thinking. So women's studies is, and I can, I can sort of looking at this over the 20 years, I can see that it is diffused much more widely across the disciplines than it was 20 years ago. So it's partly uh, a way in which women's studies has entered those core disciplines and promoted interdisciplinarities, um, at least in the social sciences and humanities. And second and more problematic, I think, is that the move, the, the sort of general doxa, if you like, that we, we're now in in higher ed education, which is to present university education as a private rather than a public good, and a university education as a vocational preparation for employment, those two things have meant that women's studies courses have um, started to, to find it difficult to recruit um, because they're looking less like they are going to provide um, private good uh, that you'll earn more at the end of it. Um, uh, and we've turned away from the idea that there might be some kind of public good that comes from education. Um, I think there are cases, absolutely cases, to be made for women's studies as a preparation for employment. And we've seen our own students go very successfully uh, particularly into the, uh, things that we all feel very proud of, policy advice, journalism, research, working in NGOs, lobbying, you know, all of those things. Um, but I think it has fallen victim along as, as programmes, along with a number of other courses, to this sort of centralising of teaching in core courses to recruit large numbers of students. And also to the increasing separation of teaching and research. Uh, so interdisciplinary research is fostered. You can get funding for interdisciplinary research. It's quite difficult uh, within institutions, uh, disciplines and faculties tend to, to um, preserve and hoard their own funding rather than promoting interdisciplinary work. So the first thing is to sort of say, is to think more carefully about what it means when we say that women's studies courses are closing, is that a bad or a good thing, what's the, out, what's the, the field in which that's happening? Um, and the second hazard, I suppose, is, is, the, is the old um, question that we keep returning to, uh, which is the one of nomenclature, the term women's studies. Um, often women's studies is characterised as a kind of old-fashioned doxa, that women, woman is seen as a, a category of analysis that has to in some way be overcome um, or needs to be displaced, uh, particularly by, um, uh, most often I suppose, the challenges come from ideas of intersectionality. 
I want to, though, just to conclude by suggesting it's precisely in women's studies that these debates um, take place and can take place with particular and open intensity. So these debates about where a feminist politics engages with and critiques the claims of the dispositions of identity which secure inequality. Too often, I think, we tend to evade what we perceive as divisions. I think we should be thinking more about the capaciousness of this category, woman, as a space where we debate intersectionality rather than characterising woman as inevitably exclusionary. The programme here at Women's Oxford is called Women's Studies. The first programmes in the field were also called Women's Studies. Since the 1980s, some programmes, a lot of programmes, have changed their names to Women's and Gender Studies, or Women's Gender and Sexuality Studies, or finally just to Gender Studies. Other programmes... Um, so what are the politics of these kind of name changes? Um, by transforming Women's Studies to Gender Studies, or to Women's and Gender Studies, the goal for some is to foreground the critique of women as a woman as a coherent sign and to highlight the category's foundational relationality. Gender studies, so the story goes, makes space for new subjects, such as, for instance, trans men and women. It also recognises how gender is relational, that is, how masculine and femininity are related, and hence study of one requires analysis of the other. So changing the title from women's studies to gender studies identifies men and masculinity as potential objects of study. However, there are several problems with this transition. Robin Wigman um, elucidates this rather well, I think. Moving from woman to gender does nothing to address the field's prioritisation of white Western women. In fact, whereas women could potentially refer to all women, such that a project in women's studies could look at, say, the work discrimination that black women face, the analytic gender is often less clear. Gender can't undo women's problematic heritage because gender often tacitly, I think, subordinates categories of race, class, and nation. So Wiegmann puts it this way, the move from women to gender doesn't displace the problematic of identity that women is said to represent. Rather, it mimics that problematic, which is to say that while gender may appear to be more intellectually capacious than women, it will ultimately fail to fulfil the demand for representational comprehensiveness as well. So I'm going to turn again, just to finish off, to, to Toral Moore to help me make this case for the kind of capaciousness and disputatiousness, disputatiousness, capaciousness and disputatiousness, which makes the category of woman still an urgent centre of analysis. <coughs> Moore reminds us that women's studies, or feminism, is not the cause of a social crisis in relation to gender, and we're too often told this, that somehow feminism is the cause of some kind of social crisis around gender, rather than a way of analysing it but rather part of a wider power struggle and a place which can foster critical thinking to enable the transformation of meanings and power relations between the academy. So she says, firmly anti-essentialist, Borgia's analysis does not lose sight of the fact that if women are socially constructed as women, this means that they are women. Or, to put it in terms of current theoretical debates within feminism, sexual differences are neither essences nor simple signifiers neither a matter of realism nor of nominalism, but a matter of social practice. Sexual differences or sexual identities, then, cannot be deconstructed away. Real social change is required to empty <coughs> these categories of current meanings. This is not to say that the deconstruction of sexual metaphysics is not a useful activity in the struggle against patriarchy. It is rather to indicate that only the existence of social crisis, a power struggle on the level of gender, can enable such a potential 
critical activity to take place in the first place.